Section 16 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. Charles and Clarendon. Part 2. In one part at least of the partial fulfilment of the Declaration of Breda, Charles took an important and creditable share. There was great danger, growing greater as the days passed, that in spite of the composite character of the House of Commons, the spirit of retaliation might even there secure a bloody satisfaction. But a far more savage temper reigned in the Lords. The bill sent up from the Commons in consequence of an urgent message from the King accepted only eight of the King's judges for life and estate, and some twenty more for pains and penalties not extending to life. The Lords resolved that all who had signed the warrant should die, then all who were concerned in the murder. Again Charles intervened. He insisted upon drawing a broad line between the regicides and all others. But for his promise, he told the Lords plainly, neither he nor they would have been there. His own honour and the public security alike demanded an indemnity for all except those immediately guilty of the crying sin. In the conferences between the Houses, the Lords actually demanded the death of four members of Cromwell's High Court of Justice in revenge for the death of four of their own number condemned by that court, the victims to be chosen by the relatives of the slain men. They even proposed to bring to the scaffold all who had sat upon any court of justice by which royalists had been tried. But Charles and Clarendon supported the Commons' resistance with their whole influence, hoping that their lordships would not have the sacrifice of the king's blood to be mingled with any other blood. And so, at the price of some twenty lives, the universal fear was removed. It should not be forgotten that it was principally owing to Charles and Clarendon that after a civil war which had its roots in the deepest feelings which can stir men's minds, after a despotism which had been established in blood and held in its place, amid the ruins of the Constitution, by the sword and only by the sword, the restoration of the old order was accomplished with slaughter which, when compared with the wrongs which seemed to call for vengeance, was well-nigh insignificant and when a few months later a new house met, the composition of which showed that a parliamentary movement had become a royalist revel, and that there was a serious prospect of some tampering with the primary condition of the restoration settlement, Charles's earliest message was a distinct refusal to pass any bill whatsoever, until this act was placed beyond dispute. It was not only in his public utterances that the king showed his distaste for severity. One day in July 1661, when he was in council, a question arose as to whether another batch of prisoners should be brought to trial. On a scrap of paper which he passed to Clarendon, Charles wrote, I must confess that I am weary of hanging, except on new offences, let it sleep, you know that I cannot pardon them. The prisoners little guessed that to these careless words they owed their lives, as little as Vane knew two years later, that in spite of the king's promise, 
he stood upon the scaffold because with equal flippancy charles had written to clarendon that it would be well to put him away if it can be honestly done nevertheless there was hanging and quartering enough to satisfy the man in the street on october thirteenth sixteen sixty pepys who had seen charles i killed had a great treat he saw the first blood shed in revenge i went out to charing cross to see major-general harrison hanged drawn and quartered which was done there he looking as cheerful as any man could in that condition he was presently cut down and his head and heart shown to the people at which there was great shouts of joy evelyn a few days later was unfortunate enough to miss the actual doing to death of four others in the presence of charles he had to content himself with meeting their quarters mangled and cut and reeking as they were brought from the gallows in baskets on the hurdle and when we remember that the only exclamation which this sight drew from one so gentle so refined was oh the miraculous providence of god it is not easy to overestimate the value of the firmness with which charles and clarendon stood in the path of those who sought for blood it was only when the religious question was seriously taken up that the difference between the views of charles and those of his old adviser began to make itself felt clarendon held that the restoration of monarchy meant the restoration of the church for which the monarchy had fallen he detested the presbyterians now as he had always detested them with a whole heart and he was resolved that they should lie under the heel of the victorious church but charles had a very different object he could not be expected since he was a boy when he left england to realize at first the strength of anglican feeling he too hated presbyterianism with the hatred born of his scotch experiences at any rate it was not the religion for a gentleman but on the other hand he wanted in all earnest to redeem his pledges to the catholics who had been among his father's most faithful adherents had helped him to escape after worcester had found him funds during his exile and had been more than others the mark for fine imprisonment and confiscation rebel for rebel he scribbled to clarendon i had rather trust a papist rebel than a presbyterian if clarendon and the bishops were to have their way and the church were to be restored to her full supremacy all hope of toleration would be gone for the moment the most obvious plan was the emasculation of the church by forcing upon her a compromise with presbyterianism that clarendon never meant this to take place if he could prevent it we do not for a moment believe how far charles himself was sincere it would be hard to say but in the present state of the house of commons all pointed to the feasibility of the plan charles took his part in what turned out to be an elaborate farce by making ten of the leading presbyterian ministers royal chaplains he even attended their sermons he was then desired by the commons to select a number of divines of both persuasions to debate the conditions of compromise to this meeting on october twenty third he submitted the draft of a declaration which he wished to issue 
repudiating the many oaths he had taken in Scotland to the Covenants, on the ground of constraint, and declaring his preference for the Anglican Church as the best fence God hath yet raised against popery in the world, he nevertheless upheld the claims of the Presbyterians to favourable treatment. The declaration went on to create an episcopal system so modified, as with the promise of a revision of the prayer book, to secure an acceptance by many of the leading Presbyterians, one of whom accepted a bishopric on the faith of it. So far, all had gone smoothly, and then suddenly, before he had been six months on the throne, came the cleavage on one side of which stood Charles alone, on the other, the two great religious parties which possessed political power. A petition having been read from the Independents and Anabaptists, praying for freedom of religious worship, Charles thought his opportunity was come. He proposed toleration for all, so long as the public peace were not disturbed, a toleration even greater than Cromwell would have allowed, whose inheritance he was claiming. A cold silence fell upon the conference, broken at length not by the Episcopalians but by Baxter. Without reserve, he said, that there could be toleration neither for those as denied the Trinity nor for Papists. Not a voice was heard in support of the King's view, and the declaration was published without this clause. The King was thanked for it by Parliament, and a bill was brought in by Sir Matthew Hale to turn it into law. But now Clarendon took part in the drama. He had no intention of balking the Church of her rights, of seeing even a partial triumph of Presbyterianism. He had been busy in securing a majority against any compromise. The Declaration had done its work in gaining time, and Hales's bill was rejected by 183 to 157. Parliament was at once dissolved. Even before the new House met, the mask had been thrown off, by the issue of an order to the justices to see that the full liturgy of the church was restored. In April 1661, another conference was held in the Savoy Palace, which failed because Clarendon and the Episcopalian members, at any rate, intended it to fail. The field was again free for the full play of the vengeful passions of the church, and Charles, at the very threshold, had received his first lesson on the limits of his power. The extent of the reaction which followed the Restoration was disclosed when the new Parliament met in May of 1661. In a house of more than five hundred members, scarcely one in ten was of the old majority. It was a Parliament full of lewd young men, chosen by a furious people, in spite to the Puritans, whose severity had distasted them. They were of loyal families, but young men for the most part, which being told the king, he replied that was no great fault, for he could keep them till they got beards. The great majority were prepared to go any lengths in favor of the church. The sacrament was imposed upon all members according to the prescribed liturgy. The bishops were restored to their seats in the lords, in spite of Charles's personal opposition. The Corporation Act, demanding an oath which Presbyterians would not take, as a condition of membership of a municipal body, swept away at a blow 
their whole political influence in the corporations where they were the strongest and thus destroyed presbyterianism in the state the act of uniformity destroyed it in the church no one might hold a living unless he had before st bartholomew's day august twenty fourth sixteen sixty two publicly read the service from the new prayer book which had been revised by convocation in the sense most objectionable to the presbyterians and had declared his unfeigned assent and consent to everything therein finally all incumbents holders of university offices schoolmasters and private tutors were to take the oath of the corporation act renounce the covenant and promise to conform to the liturgy and endeavour no change or alteration of government either in church or state the presbyterians for the most part refused the terms of uniformity on sunday august seventeenth farewell sermons were preached to crowded and sympathetic congregations and two thousand clergymen retired into voluntary poverty and professional exile henceforward presbyterianism was the mode of thought not of a large part of the english church but of a dissenting sect the church of england had taken the shape which it holds to this day the king was soon to learn how completely he was within the grasp of the church he had already become conscious of very galling constraint the resolve of the commons to bring in the uniformity bill had been the firmer because it was known that he was opposed to stringency in the midst of the royalist riot they had been careful to give him such a revenue only as should keep him poor because in marvel's gravely ironical words tis good to leave something to give hereafter and his financial difficulties gave them the complete control of the situation they used their power to wring from him a personal declaration of allegiance to the church on march first sixteen sixty two he complained to the house of the unworthy suspicions against him declared that he was zealous for the church and in love with the book of common prayer and expressed his desire for the act of uniformity he was supplied with money and was then called upon to fulfil his part of the bargain but the act having been passed and parliament prorogued charles began his running fight for the prerogative by announcing his intention of suspending execution and when clarendon opposed so unconstitutional an assumption of power he induced him to give way on the grounds that his honour was pledged to this cause at the back of clarendon however stood the bishops and their resistance led by sheldon a mighty stout man a man of a brave high spirit who represented with great ability the irreconcilable section of the church speedily convinced charles of the imprudence of the step foiled in this first attempt to snatch the suspensory power he was now to have still more emphatic evidence of the limits to his independent action the commons had separated in may sixteen sixty two gratified by their triumph over the presbyterians in the corporation and uniformity acts they met again in february sixteen sixty three to find themselves confronted by an enemy whom they feared and detested with a still keener hate and terror the dominant factor in the feverish politics of this reign is to be found in the feeling of the ordinary english mind 
regarding popery. Churchmen might despise and persecute the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians, as in Scotland, might regard the independent sects as the advocates of the devil, but in all of them hatred of popery was the master impulse. Fox's Book of Martyrs was favorite reading, and the fires of Smithfield were in the English imagination ready to burst into flame. Another armada seemed to hang like a dark cloud upon our shores, and a fresh gunpowder plot might at any moment come to light. There was no atrocity which was not held to be natural to the papists. The very debauchery of the court was laid to their charge, and the cry which greeted the early Christians in Rome, Christianos ad leones, never rang more pitilessly than the execrations which, when the panic rose to its height, were hurled at the bloody papists. To the Englishmen, then, it was the first duty of the king to hate and combat this last and insolentist attempt on the credulity of mankind. But first, to his astonishment, and then to his indignant fury, he found, or thought he found, that Charles was of altogether another mind. For during the recess the king had again deliberately challenged this ingrained feeling of the nation. On December 26th, 1662, he had issued a declaration expressing his intention of doing his best to induce Parliament to mitigate the rigor of the Act of Uniformity, and to concur with him in making some act for that purpose as may enable him to exercise, with a more universal satisfaction, that power of dispensing which he conceived to be inherent in him. The very claim which, under the pressure of the bishops, he had for the moment relinquished. This declaration drew from Sheldon a letter in which the iniquity of the proposal, as tending to set up that most damnable and heretical doctrine of the Church of Rome, Whore of Babylon, was set before him in the plainest language. Undeterred by this fulmination, the King met Parliament on February 18th with a speech in which he declared himself in nature an enemy to all severity for religion and conscience, and while disclaiming any intention of favoring the papists, and desiring that laws might be made to hinder the spread of their doctrines, he asked for such a power of indulgence, to use upon occasions, as might not needlessly force the dissenters out of the kingdom, or give them cause to conspire against its peace. End of section 16